0: Hi, I'm Adam, guys. I'm David Lurch. We're hosts of the EdTech Distilled Podcast, which is a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education
1: podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Colin Kersey about his latest thriller novel, Swimming with the Angels. A page-turner. Great characters. You're going to love the book, and you're going to love our talk. Thanks for listening. And uh, by the way, before you go, it would be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmoletto.com slash reviews, and uh, left a review for the podcast. Could you do that for me? That would be so awesome. Enjoy the show. (laughs) You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now, here's Steve with this week's show. Colin Kersey's writing combines hair-raising stories and vivid prose with colorful characters. His first novel, Soul Catcher, was published by St. Martin's Press. A former Washingtonian and self-described rainophobe, Colin now lives on a sunny island in Southern California where he's employed as global PR manager for a Japanese company. He is a graduate of the University of Washington, Western Washington University, and the novel writing program at Stanford University. He is currently working on a third novel. His work has been mentioned or featured in select news media outlets, including Entertainment Weekly, Washington Post, Library Journal, Publishers Weekly, and Kirkus Reviews. Today we're talking about his Latest book, Swimming with the Angels. And let's mention a little bit about Swimming with the Angels. Gray Reynolds' world is violently upended when assassins wound him and kill everyone else aboard a speedboat. He then learns from his dying wife that she helped steal $100 million from a notorious drug cartel. Gray's only hope of staying alive is to disappear. Forced to flee, Gray searches out a remote trout fishing farm in the foothills of the North Cascades that seems to be the perfect hideout. But his identity is not the farm's only secret. Traumatized by the loss of her mother to cancer, a young blind woman believes the mysterious stranger is the man her mother promised would one day come. Her infatuation, however, arouses the desires of her older married sister. Tensions escalate when a tragedy occurs, raising the possibility of the farm's imminent sale and rekindling the cartel's relentless determination to discover Gray's whereabouts. In Swimming with the Angels, Colin Kersey has woven themes of longing and grief, love and sensuality into a thriller of uncommon beauty and depth. Colin, it is awesome to have you here on the show. Thank you so much for joining me, and say hi to everyone.
0: Hello, everyone. It's good to be with you.
1: Well, I'm glad you're here, and uh, I got to tell you, I loved your book. It was cool, and uh, I don't. I I read a lot of books, and uh, um, and a lot of times I read uh, you know a section at a time, and. Uh, I spent uh, most of the night reading your book, and uh, so which is cool. So I, I, I couldn't stop reading. Um, but Thank you. You're welcome. Before we talk about Swimming with the Angels, I got to ask you: Do you have a favorite writer or writers?
0: Well, I grew up with classics like Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson, and I'm still very fond of stories like that. And I went to Hemingway and Steinbeck and the usual suspects. I was fascinated by Conrad and his description of a storm at sea, and similarly by Eric Maria Remark and his the depth of his emotions in All Quiet on the Western Front. So that's some of the background that I grew up with. And then I've gone on to everything from thrillers by people like John Sanford to literary fiction by people like Anthony Doerr and Mark Hilperin.
1: Very cool, very cool. This is, I like to to know who, you know, others might be, if you're writing, who you might be reading. So I like that. So, I got to ask you, what was the inspiration for Swimming with the Angels?
0: So, uh, several different things, actually. First of all, it's typically news stories that uh, give me a hook. And in this case, I've read about hundreds of millions of dollars being hacked from a large financial institution. And second of all, living in Southern California, I I was reading about these drug cartels and how they were trying to launder all their money. And I thought, what would happen if somebody hacked money from a large financial institution and it belonged to a cartel? seemed to me that would be double jeopardy. And third of all, my first marriage was a disaster. I ended up losing everything I owned having to start over from scratch. So I put my protagonist in that same sort of position where he's got to start over. And finally, my mother, when I was a teenager, took me once to a trout fishing farm. And I thought, well, if you were looking for a place to escape, this would be the perfect location. So putting all that together, I came up with Swimming with the Angels.
1: That's cool. <laughs> and yes, I having been to a trout fishing farm, I, I where that was located, I can only imagine that uh, there wouldn't be a lot of people thinking Somebody would have escaped there. So I know it was a great setting for the book. That's very cool. You know, as I'm reading Swimming with the Angels, I'm amazed how much I just want to keep reading. All right. And I think this is cool. And, you know, I, I want to keep reading and see what happens. Is there something that you are doing in your writing style that you're consciously doing to try and make me as a reader want to keep going?
0: Well, there's a couple of things. One is that I try to write with as much detail as I can. So I'm trying to put together a narrative action with dialogue that is so descriptive. People call it cinematic that you can literally visualize it. It's like a movie playing on, uh, across the book. And so that's one of the things that I'm doing. A Stanford uh, professor called it ultra realism, which I really love that term. So I'm I'm trying for that. But then I think also more importantly, there's the depth of the emotions of the characters. I'm, I'm trying to get you to identify with what they're going through, whether it's grief or loss or joy or passion, Whatever it is, I want to invoke that in you as a reader. So I think those two things, putting those together, hopefully is what attracts readers to my writing.
1: Well, I think you achieve it very well because it's because uh, I'm someone who I like lots of different types of books. And uh, when it comes to reading fiction, um, you know, sometimes even though I may like the book or whatever, I may stop every so many, you know, 20 pages or so. Um, I didn't do that with yours.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. That's great to hear.
1: You're welcome. The uh, And I, I got to say this, because, you know, one of the things you do is in your book, you fairly quickly have something bad happen. <laughs> and uh, is this by design or it just happened as you were writing?
0: Absolutely by design. In fact, uh It's funny you ask that question, because the book actually started in Chapter 2 originally. And when the editor saw it for Atmosphere Press, he said, I need you to add a a chapter before that, because you're grabbing us so early before we really understand who the characters are. So I went back and wrote Chapter 1 and Put it in first, so so it was definitely by design. I wanted to get the readers right from the get go, and I think that's um, probably uh, typical of many writers, especially thriller writers today. Is that we we know readers don't have a great deal of, pas- of of patience. You know, they're in a bookstore, they're thumbing through a book, they're trying to figure out what they're going to spend there. 15 20 bucks on and it better come pretty fast <laughs> otherwise they're gonna set it back down so definitely by design
1: that's awesome that's awesome because yeah I, I fit in that category so I yeah you know, it's uh I like the uh I like something to happen and uh, then figure out what's gonna go on from there and uh you definitely uh, make that happen because it's and that's interesting that it started in chapter two and that you had to add the early stuff so right yeah. Uh, that's cool. The uh, um, so I got to I got to tell you I like Gray. Gray is a very likable character. I mean, could you talk about how you decide what each of the people in your story will be like? I mean, I there's a character named Stu. He's good to not like, you know, and he and he's not the really he's not the bad guy, you know.
0: <laughs> so, um, well, just a real quick recap here. So Gray is a naive young man. Much like I was starting off, and he, but he has a good heart and uh, an eye for beauty. He's a bit of a sensualist, uh, a romantic, but he's also hardworking. He doesn't give up, and he could have become bitter by what happened to him through no fault of his own. He's on the run from a cartel that wants him dead and their money back. <clears throat> And so he he's Mr. Good guy, but he's not flawless either, as people will discover. He has uh, he has his own flaws. and and I try to make my characters that way. Nobody's totally evil. well, there's one character that's pretty close to evil, but even her, I try to make, uh, you know some you can kind of see how she would get there, which by the way, this cartel, hit woman that I created was actually drawn upon a real person. So the Sinaloa Cartel actually has an enforcement um, splinter group called Anthrax. and this woman was the head of it, and she compared herself to one of the Kardashians, and so she wore a lot of makeup, and she looked very sexy. She ended up dying a couple years ago, I think in a hail of bullets, so she didn't have a long life. But anyway, she was the head of the cartel's enforcement group. So anyway, so um, for my my character, Valerie, she's disabled she has a lot of flaws, but she's also very sympathetic. She's somebody that we want to pull for. She's, her only friend is her seeing-eye dog, and she's trapped in this farm and um, dismissed by her family. It's just, you know, she's in a horrible predicament. Grace shows up, and she thinks, aha, this is my ticket. Unfortunately, her lascivious alcoholic sister sees Gray as maybe her ticket as well, which sets off all kinds of repercussions leading to Stu's jealousy because Stu had a very promising baseball career. He was signed out of high school and assigned to a pro team and unfortunately blew out his arm. And there went his dreams and Vonda's dreams. And now everybody's at odds because they all wanted something that they're not getting. And Virgil is the guy who owns the farm. He's the patriarch. And I find him as a very loving, very trustworthy guy, somebody you want to have. For a father, but he's also very old-fashioned. He wants peace. He wants to keep his family together, and it's that's where all the murkiness happens. So, which, by the way, I use the, uh, the trout fishing ponds as kind of a way to increase the mystery, the murkiness of the water, the fish underneath the water. To me, I was trying to set up this whole mysterious undercurrents. And of course the trout are also cannibals, which adds a little <laughs> flavor too. So that's a little recap of the characters.
1: That's cool to know that about the fish, because I kept thinking, you know, it, all right, before I go there, I got to say this, you know, it, it, uh, it's cool what you're talking about with the fish, because the, the different things that happen around those fish ponds and, uh, that that's that's cool that you're actually thanking them in that way because uh I can see that. <laughs> I can definitely see that. So and without saying much more about it, I don't want to give away stuff. They, they gotta read the book. <laughs> so <laughs> But it's cool. Yeah. Um I g I gotta say this too, when you're talking about the different characters, I mean like you're talking about Gray being hardworking. I mean and one of the things I love is when he's trying to get the job there at the farm and you know, and one of the things he does is he's driven a tractor before, and so he he goes out on the tractor. And uh, my favorite thing is when he's covered in mud and he's trying to explain. And and Virgil shows that good side of himself, which is that instead of you know Stu wants him fired, and and Virgil's actually going to help him get that tractor out the next morning. And I think that's the that's that that cool dynamic is really neat what what happened right there. So thank I, I, you.
0: Yeah. We all, we all need grace, right?
1: So yes. That's what I thought was cool about that was that it was like, you know, and it showed how I mean, he was just trying to get it done and keep doing it. And even though <laughs> should have known that there's, it's going to be a little too mucky out there, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I don't know. There's just something all about that scene. Maybe it's cause uh, um, kind of, you know, whether you've ever driven a tractor or not, doesn't matter. It's, it's, if ever you've, meant well, but it didn't turn out the way you meant to do whatever it is, you know. Exactly, and by the
0: way, uh, I did drive a tractor for years in high school, so the scene is actually written with some authenticity, so there's more than once I got stuck in my tractor and had to be rescued.
1: Nice, nice That's that's got to be humbling in itself. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want to go ask somebody for help out of this. Give me a break. <laughs> uh, excellent. I, all right. So you know, one of the things that uh, um, speaking of characters, I mean, you created like you've um, mentioned just briefly, one that's blind. I mean, was there a reason for uh, for doing this with a character?
0: Well, uh, there's something um, stupid about me, I guess, that I keep putting myself in these challenges. My first book, Soul Catcher, had a deaf boy, and this book features a woman who's blind. And it's not easy when you don't have those characteristics yourself to write from their viewpoint. So it takes some research and also just a lot of understanding. What would that be like? And the reason I do it is, I. First of all, I really admire people who are disabled. I mean, just getting out of bed in the morning, they're accomplishing more than a lot of us have to face during our typical day. So I find them to be very brave people, and uh, I really admire that. As it happens, I develop my own disability, nothing as bad as being blind or deaf, but... When I was still in my 40s, I uh, came down with this voice disability. I have an essential tremor that I was diagnosed with, and it's been getting worse since then. And given that in my job, I was supposed to be a spokesperson, it made it, you know, difficult. So I had to turn more to writing and leave the speechifying and so forth behind, which, it's mostly turned out to be a good thing, except for interviews like this, where you've got to suffer through my voice. What's worse is I'll go out to dinner or for a drink somewhere, and as the noise builds behind me, my my voice can't keep up with it, and it just cuts out totally so that I can't be heard, which is maybe a good thing. I don't know. Anyway, so that's where that came from.
1: That's neat. The uh, And it... and works really well because the character and the other characters working with that character is what's, especially Gray, who, you know, he doesn't know her. And so you don't have the, in the beginning, doesn't know her and comes into contact with her and has to adjust what he's doing to rea- when he realizes that she's blind. And, uh, but I, I just think that's a, it's a neat character and, you, and really adds a lot to uh, what's going on. It's not like you just put somebody in there with this disability. So, Kudos.
0: And and of course, again, trying not to give away too much. But what's unique about Valerie is she's not only disabled by her blindness, but due to her mother's death by cancer, she's also disabled psychologically. And you don't realize how great she's been affected by this at first. And, and, and then you see us as you read further, that this is really profound. And I, that's one of the things I wanted to deal with in my novel is that, first of all, a mistake by your spouse, however innocent, can have profound effects. But, but second of all, loss, whether it's from a job loss or a, a family member dying or whatever it is, can have effects that just the repercussions ripple through your life and can destroy people and certainly destroy marriages or happiness and so forth and so that's one of the areas that i wanted to explore in swimming with the angels
1: that's cool that's uh, and it and with you doing that by the way it makes it feel like you know it's a a family extended family you know, whatever you want to refer to it as as opposed to just kind of people who bump into each other because there's all these other there's things there that are, would you know, be part of real be part of reality. And then when when you add in the um, like you said, without giving away too much of it, the her sense of her own sense you know, Valerie's own sense of reality, <laughs> um, as you get more and more a glimpse of it really kinda of makes you um I don't know. What it did to me is it sucked me into the story. So (laughs) even more.
0: You know, there's, I'll add something here if I can. I took these classes at Stanford in the online novel writing program, which was very helpful. And all the professors were novel writers themselves. One of them had asked us as an exercise to write a chapter or scene with one of our characters that was not the main character and who didn't have a speaking part, but write it as if they were suddenly the main character. And that's how Valerie kind of took off and became a more major role in the book with her own speaking parts and so forth was I wrote this chapter and read it for the class and everybody kind of went, wow, where did that come from? And it was Valerie just trying to get out, show me who she was. And from that point on, she became much more, you know, major character in the book.
1: That's awesome. That's cool that you had, that uh, you read it to the class and such as, as you were figuring these things out. I love that. That is awesome. Well, she's a cool character. I got to tell you. Um, you know, let's let's do this for a minute. Can you talk about writing thrillers? I mean, what is something that you have to keep in mind when you're doing that type of story?
0: So um, the trick for me to building a suspenseful story is, like I said earlier, is to to take detail and mix it in with emotions that we can all recognize, whether it's, Happiness, greed, loss, whatever it is, mix those together with something that is out to get you. It's either going to hurt you, eat you, kill you. There's some that that's how you make a thriller, and then you ratchet up the suspense. So wherever it starts out, and usually, as in my case, you it starts out with a, a big bang. And then, of course, the story develops and you find out more about the characters and what they're going through, but always in the background is this sense that the thing, beneath the thing, is coming along behind you, and don't look over your shoulder because it might be gaining on you. (laughs) So that's how it works in Jaws, and that's how it works basically in every thriller, is to, to ratchet up the tension until it hopefully there's a satisfying conclusion and the reader says oh didn't see that coming but that makes total sense
1: that's so cool that's it's cool to hear you explain that because oh yeah this is this is a cool story and it it got that feeling and it's like oh now what so i had to say it that way there's because there's parts of the story where you're like okay you're thinking over here and and then suddenly it's over here. I don't know how to say that. So, (laughs) but that's a cool thing too. So, you know, I I like the way you're writing and, you know, I got to ask this, I mean, you know, so when you, as you're writing, do you plan what you're writing? I mean, do you, do you outline or do you do something like that? Or do you, um, or do you just go with what you, you go with the flow?
0: I discovered with my first book that if you just go with the flow, you can have this thing suddenly sprouting off in all different directions. In fact, I learned a term for it. It's called spaghettiing. So as a first-time novelist, um, when I wrote Soul Catcher, initially that first hundred pages just kind of rocketed. And everything was going strong. And then all of a sudden, it started going off in a multitude of directions. And I realized that I had to control this. And that's when I discovered that I needed to have some kind of a map. So to use the map as a, a visual idea, if you're starting out from Los Angeles and going to New York, you may not know all the stops you're going to make or how much time you're going to spend in each one or who you're going to meet, but you have a plan. You're going to end up more or less here. And sometimes it's a vague here. It's somewhere in New York, but you don't know exactly how or why. So... That's what I try to do. I I then stage it out. I know there's, and again, this is something you learn as a novelist that typically people are looking for three acts, you know, big. Boom in the beginning, and then a development section in the middle, and then a climax in the third part. That can be radically different how that looks, but that's basically the organization of most novels, most movie movies, plays you name it. So, as you learn those things, you learn that it's wise to think ahead and to put down at least a a, some kind of a plot outline however loose it is just to keep from going off the rails because it it can happen easily where you suddenly down some dark road without a flashlight going what the heck happened here
1: sorry that's funny (laughs) i can i can only imagine yes it's or back yourself into a corner and suddenly get two people in the same place that shouldn't be in the same place or something like that.
0: <laughs> That's right. A lot of what goes on for writers. I think it's not just day to day zipping pages out. It's thinking, which by the way, can be hazardous to your health because if you're, driving a car, not paying attention, or if you're not worse, if you're not paying attention to your spouse, in the back of your mind, you've got these characters and plot lines going, well, it can be hazardous to your physical, if not emotional health. So that's one of the dangers of being a writer. <laughs>
1: that's interesting. Cause I can see how that happens too. If you're, you're kind of trying to be the person, you know, or be the, the scene or feeling the emotions of the scene and the other person's trying to talk with you or wondering why you're off on another planet. <laughs> oh, That's yeah. it. Exactly. Nice. Nice. I, Colin, this is cool. I, I got to tell you, this is uh, cause I, 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 love your book, swimming with the angels. And uh, by the way, beautiful cover, um, really cool cover. And yeah, uh, I really
0: liked it too.
1: Thank you. You're welcome. That is, that is an awesome cover. I, I um, but, but, Before we go, i got to ask you, do you want to give everybody like a little synopsis of your first book, Soul Catcher? You referred to it a couple of times.
0: Sure. Would love to. So Soul Catcher came about, uh, again, based on a news story I had read about. Uh, I lived in Seattle at the time, and I read this little article about two boys that drowned, washed up on the shore of an island there, and their bodies were wrapped in fishing lines which nobody could figure out how or why this would have happened. So I was thinking about how would that happen? Would the boat have spun somehow? And then that Christmas, I received one of those letters that recaps, you know, your friend's life. And this one explained about her husband, who was a, a dentist and had his own plane in Alaska. And he would fly to various villages to, you know, carry out his practice. And he was also an avid hunter and fisherman. And he's flying back home one time and he spots a pristine little lake and he can't help himself. He lands his pontoon plane on the lake and he's casting out from the pontoon trying to catch some fish. And out of nowhere, a wind comes and flips his plane. He nearly drowns. He made it to shore where a couple of Inuit tribespeople rescued him and took him back to their village. Otherwise, he would have died. So they called the wind a Willowa that protected their holy places. When I heard that, and I thought back to these two boys, I thought, well, there's my story. And so I did a great deal of research. Fortunately, I knew I had met Numerous Native Americans up in the Washington area and had grown up next to a reservation and done some interviewing and so forth. So I had some background to draw on and I, I created this elderly Indian shaman from the Canadian subarctic who's the last of his tribe and he comes to the Seattle area to find his long lost daughter and before he can he's murdered. By some thugs in Seattle. And he calls on the spirit wind for revenge. So the spirit wind comes rocketing down to Seattle and it's capsizing sailboats and knocking panels off skyscrapers and, and creating mayhem. And of course, no one believes there are spirit winds. So the weathermen and the news people are all talking about how there's fluky weather conditions going on as usual in Seattle. So you know, people are dying though, and some of the people that are victims, like a woman who's lost her dog and almost died herself, wants to get to the bottom of this. And I, I again, I have a. A disabled character, a 13-year-old boy who's deaf, but he can hear the wind, and the wind speaks to him, and it's eventually going to make him a sacrifice. He's scared, and he tries to tell his mother, but she thinks he's crazy. And then it takes an Indian lawyer who understands both the spare world and also you know, the world that we all live in and accept as reality. He puts two and two together. He and the boy and the boy's divorced mother try to solve this. And I invent some other characters too, like there's a newspaperman who's, who's kind of on his last go around. He's, you know, had some bad luck in the past. And there's this lady that lost her dog, and somebody else who lost some family members in a sailboat. Anyway, they all band together to try and stop this wind before it destroys Seattle.
1: That is awesome. Got to got to get that one. The uh, and and as a note, you're working on a third one, a third book, a third novel. So, um, can you tell us anything about it or?
0: I'll tell you uh, this. So my character Gray from Swimming with the Angels is uh, in this book as well, as is Patsy, the seeing eye dog. And together they're uh, riding in a truck now. That's his new job. He's a truck driver. And he's going to discover something that will not only have the cartel chasing him, but the CIA, Homeland security, and also the Chinese Secret Service. So he's going to be in some fairly serious peril in book number three.
1: Very cool. That's, that's neat to know that the two of them are back, because I like Patsy too. That was cool. <laughs> nice. I like all right, Gray is back. I like that. Nice. Uh, Good stuff. Colin, this has been awesome talking with you. i got a couple more questions to ask you in a minute, but uh, before we go um, and before we get to that area, if if someone wanted to know more about you, know more about what you're doing or the timing of your books or or where to get the books, uh, where would you send them?
0: They should go to my website, which is www.colincursey.com.
1: Excellent. I'll put that in the show notes so they can uh, find it right there. And uh, so I got the last two questions for you, Colin. It goes like this. When so much is going on that you become overwhelmed, what stops you from quitting?
0: A couple of things. First of all, I was raised by parents that, uh, that wouldn't let me not work. So whenever I came home from college and had two days off or five days off or two weeks off, I had to work. And it, it, sometimes I went back to school with pneumonia, but that was their intent. And I always was resourceful looking out for a job and, and able to take care of myself. And it wasn't easy. Uh, there was a semester in college where I was so poor, I'd run out of money. And I had a popcorn popper and I made soup in it every day. And that was one, my one meal every day for a semester. So, you know, life can be tough, but it forged in me resourcefulness and this quality of not quitting. And also, I was raised to be, well, I have this motto from church, faithful and fruitful. And I I try to operate based on those words that I'm going to get up every morning and see what I can do to make the world better for somebody at the very least myself, but hopefully my wife, friends, neighbors, whoever.
1: That's excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, last question, Colin, do you have a teacher in your past, uh, a teacher who made a difference with you? If so, if given a chance to say, thank you, what would you say? And who would it be?
0: There are a couple of people that were important to me. I wish I could go back and say thank you. One of them was Mr. Monroe from third grade. He read us uh, from novels that weren't really kids' novels. You know, they weren't, they wouldn't have been easy for us to read, but he could explain what various terms meant and so forth. So they weren't wild and crazy books, they were classic novels like King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, things like that. But they had these books taught morals and how to live and trustworthiness and honor and all those kind of things. So he'd be one person. Second of all, I had a music teacher I can't tell you what a poor musician I was, but he taught me guitar. And for nine years, he taught me violin. This man's patience, humor, love was immense for his students. And he challenged us. He didn't just give us what we could do. He challenged us to be better than even who we thought we could be. And finally, I had, and I can't remember his name, I'm going to have to look it up at some point, but I had a a professor at the University of Washington, and I didn't get to know him that well. He was this white-haired elderly gentleman, and I got called to his office once to review my work, and he said, well, you have the gift, don't you? And that I I can't tell you how much that means to somebody who was trying to write, who has always wanted to be a writer, but figured this was never going to happen. And so that, that meant an amazing, I wish I could tell him how much that meant to me.
1: That's so cool. Thanks for sharing about all of, all of it. That's, I love it. And you know, yeah. Someone ever says something like that it has to be an important memory right there. So very cool. I
0: was actually a student teacher at one point while going to Western Washington university. And I, um, the teacher that I was studying under literally pretty much disappeared and turned her classes over to me. And so I discovered a couple of things that didn't shock me at all. But one was that some of the students who were getting A's were just skating by on their reputation and the fact that they had maybe done pretty well in the past. And then there were other students who were getting D's who nobody had ever encouraged them. And I remember one young woman in particular that I I pulled her aside and I said, listen, this is pretty good. I think you can do better here. you know, apply yourself. You're going to be great. She went on to do great in that class. I think I made a difference in her life. Conversely, there was a guy who was just kicking back doing nothing to help himself. And I gave him a D and his mother came in and was just in a huff. And she said, how can you do this? You'll ruin his ability to go to college. And I say, well, I think I'm helping him because if he learns now, then he needs to apply himself and actually use his brain instead of sitting on it. That's going to make all the difference. So I ended up not becoming a teacher for several reasons. One was they Laid off five thousand teachers in the state that year, but second of all, I saw the politics and I saw what was kind of going on in schools, and I I didn't know that I could be that resourceful or that good a person every day. I mean, it's challenging. I had a this is a long time ago. I had a kid pull a knife on me. You know, there was all kinds of dramatic things then. I can't imagine what it's like today.
1: Oh, so so powerful and so right, so right. Uh, Colin, I can't thank you enough for sharing and talking with me today. Um, Swimming with the Angels was an excellent read. It kept me wanting to know what was going to happen. I mean, it was just, I just, I enjoyed it. It was page-turner, and like I said at the beginning, I, I, I read it almost straight through, which uh, for, for me, that's huge, by the way. But uh, I love the way you write. I love your books, and uh, looking forward to the next one. Wishing the very best in all you do
0: thank you Stephen. it's been a pleasure
1: teaching learning leading k-12 is excited to be a member of voice ed radio voice ed radio your voice is right here teaching learning leading k-12 is a proud member of the education podcast network podcasts for educators podcasts by educators the opinions expressed on teaching learning leading k-12 are those of the guests and host Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.